book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Seems like it's been a year since I've been preaching through Ephesians. In fact, the last message in Ephesians was on March the 28th in the morning service. You say, why way back then? Well, we had uh, two weeks of Easter messages, Easter Sunday and then the follow-up messages that follow up on the following Sunday. And then we had our evangelist here. Then last Sunday, I felt led of the Lord to preach some messages morning and night on the follow-up for the evangelism and revival services. So that makes like four weeks we've been out of Ephesians. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, that means we get a painful message of review. Wrong. We really don't need to review all we've preached so far from Ephesians. All we need to do is read the text of the last message. Because it introduces the message this morning. You really, it'd be hard to preach this morning's message without reading the text before it because it keeps referring back to that. So rather than be just skip the past completely and start in with verse 19, I think it would be good for us to read the last, the last text, and that was verses 11 through 18. And as we read this morning, if you will just focus especially on two key words. I mean, it doesn't take a brilliant scientist to see that in these verses 11 through 18, there are two key words that you see several times. Watch for the word both. Both. And when you think of the word both, be thinking of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Okay, both. 
Jewish believers, Gentile believers. The other key word is the word one. Be watching for the word one. Because now if you are Jew or if you are Gentile, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have been born again by the Spirit of God, then you are one. One in Christ. One body. One bride. One building made up of Jews and Gentiles. And that was exciting news for these people. That was the mystery that was not known in the Old Testament. It was known that Gentiles would be saved. That's in the Old Testament. But as far as Jews and Gentiles being in one body, both in one body, no, that was not known back in the Old Testament. It wasn't known during the gospel times. And that's what verses 11 through 18 are all about. We've preached on that already. And then this morning, the Lord willing, we want to finish off this chapter, verses 19 through 22. Verse 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he, Christ, is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make in himself of twain or two one, one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God by one body, or in one body, by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. What an important verse, okay? That is a great summary of this whole passage. And that he, Jesus Christ, might reconcile, bring together both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which are afar off and to them that are nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Do you see why we don't have to go back and re-preach that message? You say, yeah, Pastor, if you'd have just read it like that four weeks ago, we'd be out of here. No, you, you don't realize, I, I hope and I think, how much that makes sense to you because of understanding what these verses are all about and what the message is here. And he, he finishes it off. He gives further explanation and summarizes in verses 19 through 22. So here's our text for this morning, okay? Now, what's the next word? Now, then what? What's the next word? Therefore. See, there's that connecting word again. Now, therefore, because of everything that's been said in verses 11 through 18, especially verses 14 through 18, now, therefore, you, Gentile believers, are no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. 
in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray, please. Father, help us, I pray this morning, to understand the meaning of these few verses of Scripture. May we see them as they would be understood at that time, as these words of promise and privilege and blessing were were written to these new Christians in Ephesus. May we see them also, I pray today, for ourselves, living here in 2021, whether Jew or Gentile in Jesus Christ were one. And may this message today, I pray, encourage us greatly and motivate us in our love and our service for you and in our lives of holy living, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 19, now therefore connects us with these past verses. And really a summary here is that, G, that Gentile believers are no longer on the outside looking in. They should not think of themselves as foreigners, as strangers. Verse 19, now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners. So let's talk for just a moment about strangers and foreigners, okay? If you look up the word stranger in a Greek concordance, you're going to find that one of the primary definitions is the word foreigner. Then if you go and get out of Greek concordance and look up the word foreigner, you will see that one of the primary definitions of foreigner, would you believe, is stranger. So why would I want to spend a whole lot of time differentiating between the two? The meanings are so close. I thought about it. I thought, you know, there's there's one thing that makes them a little different. You could dwell on that and spend some time here. I decided, no. If the main definition of foreigner is stranger, and the main definition of stranger is foreigner, then obviously the difference between the two is not worth a lot of time. They are so similar. If there is one word that would kind of summarize both together, it would be the word alien. Now, I know because of Star Trek and Space Wars and all these other things, now when you think of alien, people just think of outer space, you know, some weird creatures from outer space they are going to invade one day, coming in these flying saucers. We're not talking about that kind of alien, but that would be alien, too. That's outside. That's outside of our atmosphere, outside of our universe, outside of our, our country, outside of our world, whatever, okay? But it is basically, to summarize again, it's, you know, people on the outside, they're strangers, they're foreigners, He says, don't think of yourselves. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers. You're no more foreigners. But then he says, you're fellow citizens. You're of the household of God. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, aliens on the outside looking in, but you are literally fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So he said, you're in the same family. You're in the same house. That's the meaning of the word household here. The meaning of household. Living in the same house. Related. Of the same family. If you go to 11021 Coachman Road, Yukon, Oklahoma, 73099, you're going to find Larry Carsey's. Almost said Darla first. Bonnie Carsey's. (laughs) My wife's been out of town for a retreat for a couple, three days. And I'll tell you, Darla's done such a good job. Just kind of filling. Dad, what do you need? Could you... Could you you use some more of this? What can I do for you? I was like, man, this is like having a slave at my house. This is really wonderful. But I never did think, may Bonnie go away more often. I never thought that. Okay. (laughs) But we live in the same house. We're family. We're the same household. You come to our house, you are a visitor. You are a guest. 
And as a guest, so to speak, you're on the outside looking in, but we are not going to treat you like that. But there are some things that you won't do because you're not of our household. You're not of our family. And so here God says, no, you're not fellow citizens. You're not strangers anymore. You're not foreigners anymore. But you are of the household. You're family. You're living in the same house. Then he says, you're fellow citizens. I like the word fellow citizens. Fellow citizens comes from two Greek words. The first word is with or together. And the second word is the word townsman, townsman, or fellow Christian. With and together, first part of the word, and then townsman. So there's a union, there's a togetherness here, there's a fellowship here that others on the outside are not a part of. They're not a, they're not a partaker of. And you can think about a country, you can think about a state, you can think about county or maybe city, or even a given community, and you get the idea here of this word fellow citizen. You hear a lot in the news today about immigration. Is that a, is that a word you hear about a thousand times a day now? Well, absolutely, you know. This whole idea of, well, who's going to come in and how many and who's going to go back out and why and where are they going to live? And it's, I mean, it's, it's a big deal today, okay? You know that. It's a huge, huge subject today. Well, not everybody's a citizen of the United States of America, right? Would you agree with that? And not everybody would agree on what you have to do to become a citizen. Not everybody would agree on what are you going to do if you're in here, but you're not a citizen. What can you enjoy? What can't you enjoy? We understand those things in, as it relates to a country or a city or a state or a whatever. Hey, listen, we are members of the Surrey Hills Homeowners Association. I already know the answer to this when I ask. I think, and I'm not even sure. How many in this building today are a member of the Surrey Hills Homeowners Association? Would you please stand? I was sure about you and you. I was really sure about you too. I was sure about you, and I was sure about Tanya, but I didn't know. Is that considered Surrey Hills too? That's wonderful. And I wasn't sure about the Masons, okay, because you're close, but no, see. You say, well, what's the difference? What's the difference? So I'll tell you what the differences are. We have some privileges. We have some opportunities. We have some restrictions. Oh, we also have some dues to pay. Thankfully, they're not high. I don't even know what they are. I just get the thing and pay it. It's somewhere between, I think, $100 and $150 a year. That's not bad for homeowners association in Surrey Hills. We say, what kind of privileges do you have? Oh, they, they come and mow our green belt. And there's stuff that falls off the trees in the green belt. They come and take it away. Um, oh, privileges. Oh, we get to use the pool. I've never used a pool in 32 years. In fact... They used to put out in, that, in the news, that Surrey Hills News Bulletin, they would make, could put a list of everybody who was behind a delinquent in paying their homeowner's dues. Yeah, really. And there were people that owed thousands. And they made all these, you're not one of them, I hope. No, okay. And, 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 and they made all these threats about if you don't pay your homeowner's due. The only ones that I remember was you can't use the pool. And I thought, well, boy, if that's the only deal, then I don't need to pay my homeowner's dues because I don't use the pool anyway. But I said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to play that game. Hey, they try to keep the place looking nice around there. They have these flowers and these nice little shrub beds and all these different things they do. And again, mow the green belt. And keep, hey, listen, and sometimes people decide they're going to have a business out of their home. Sometimes they can pull that off. Sometimes they can't. Like we had a neighbor not too far away a few years ago. They started a business in their garage. 
And somebody came, I understand, from the city and said, I'm sorry, you can't have that business in your garage in Surrey, Home, Surrey Hills homeowners. You, you can't do that. And then we had another, this was fun, we had another guy not far away. He started, an, he started an auto repair shop in his garage. I mean, his driveway was full of cars. There were cars on both sides of the street. And when he'd fix a car, they'd rev up the engine real good. And I mean, it was a loud noise. And somebody must have complained someplace because all of a sudden, guess what? They didn't live there anymore. So there are some restrictions that come, some restraints that come. There's some privileges that come, but also, you know, you pay your homeowner's dues. What am I saying? If you're not in there, you're not in there. You're not a fellow citizen. You see, fellow citizen, soon, with, together, and townsmen. And now what God says to these Gentile Christians is, now look, think about this now. You are no longer foreigners. You are no longer strangers. You're not on the outside looking in. You are of the household of faith. And you are fellow citizens. So you have a person who is a Gentile, non-Jew. He's a Gentile, but he's a true, genuine believer in Jesus Christ. He's in the family of God. He's been saved by believing in the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he has accepted Christ as his own personal Savior. He has eternal life. He has the forgiveness of his sins. He's not going to hell. He's not going to heaven. And by the way, now he's in the same body with a Jew who also believes in Christ and has been born again. That's the message of verse 19. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And by the way, he's not saying here now that the Gentiles were a part of Israel. He is saying that now they are together as members of the family of God. That's most important. They're members of the kingdom of God, the family of God. And if you know anything about your Bible, in the New Testament dispensation... This is called the church. We, we say we're living in the church age. The Old Testament was not the church age. The time of the gospel writings there, the life of Christ, that was not the church age. From the resurrection of Christ to the ascension up until Pentecost, that was not the church age. But when the Holy Spirit of God came to indwell believers... From that moment on, because of what Christ accomplished on the cross and with the empty tomb, now you have the church age, Jews and Gentile believers in Christ, one family. And as I mentioned earlier, one bride, one building, and one body. And it is this church as a household, this church now as a building made up of both Jews and Gentiles, that now is the focus of the next few verses here. Look at verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And then the next verse he talks about the building itself. The stones of the building. So kind of broken down that, that church. That building is broken down into three things. First of all he says there's a foundation. You're built upon the foundation, the apostles and the prophets. So what are the apostles? The apostles were those who were chosen, they were personally chosen and personally commissioned by Jesus Christ to be his, shall we say, his official spokesman. They had the opportunity and the privilege of giving forth the authoritative word of God. And to them also was given the privilege as God called, Christ called, and Christ commissioned apostles. They also could perform miracles. Many of these apostles 
Some of these apostles had the privilege of being called also to be authors, human authors of the inspired word of God. That's part of the foundation of the church. And then he says there's the prophets. Prophets were those who, very much like the apostles, mainly in the Old Testament, also there were prophets in the New Testament, those who were personally called by God to deliver his message to people. In the Old Testament time, that message sometimes had to do with the future. In fact, a lot of people now, when they think of prophecies, the message of the prophets, they think about end-time prophecies, you know, just predicting the future, telling about the future. No, that was a part of what they did, but most of the messages of the prophets of the Old Testament had nothing to do with the future. It was God's message to people right then and there. We'll say more about that later in the message, how people responded to that in a, in a general way. In the New Testament time, a prophet simply also, he could be someone that would mention the future, but it was mainly more now of giving forth the message of the word of God. And by the way, I want to mention this. As much as the apostles and prophets are important, and they are vitally important, is that what the verse says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, as much as that is important, there's something that's more important than that. And if we were having a discussion time, you probably would raise your hand and say, I know what it is. But it's not discussion time, amen, it's preaching time. I'll just tell you. It was the message they delivered. You don't put the focus on the prophets. You don't put the focus on the apostles as being the most important thing. The thing that was important was that every word a true prophet or a true apostle spoke, every word that came out of his mouth as he spoke a message, or every word that he wrote as a messenger of God, every word was the word of, now you tell me. It's the word of God. It was God's message, whether spoken or written. That makes it true. That makes it authoritative. That, make, that means it ought to be believed. That means it ought to be lived because the important thing was the apostle, the prophet, was called of God, commissioned of God to be his official spokesman. And when he speaks, God says, you better listen. When he writes, you better take heed. It was the mess. Why is that true? Because the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And what does the Bible say about faith? We're saved by, by, we're saved by grace through faith, right? Ephesians 2, we already taught this. Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith. It's the gift of God. So we're saved by faith. And then the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians, what, 5, 17, 7? We walk by faith and not by sight. And the Bible says we stand by faith. We live by faith. <laughs> Listen, as a Christian, we're supposed to do everything by faith. Amen? How often do I say this? The word of God should be our absolute authority for everything we believe and everything we practice. Amen? Now you think about that and how important that is in 2021. Because I don't know what you think about this world, but I don't think it's getting more godly. And I don't think with all of our increased knowledge now with computers and cell phones and all the rest and tablets and all whatever's out there, okay? I think the, the, the basically the knowledge of the people of the world is, is, is it's expanding and it's expanding fast. But I don't see an increase in the knowledge of the word of God. The unsafe for sure, and I don't see it a whole lot in the lives of believers today. 
seems like our knowledge of everything else is expanding so fast and so greatly. And with that expansion of knowledge has come a shrinkage of people's knowledge of the Bible. But the Bible is the word of God. It is so vitally important because it ought to be the basis of everything we believe and everything we practice. And that is so important in today's world. It is getting harder and harder and harder to even buy, quote unquote, Christian books. Because as you read even Christian books, you have to keep sorting out. Is that really biblical or not? Is that some new thought? Is that some new trend? Is that some new idea? What, what is this all about? And all of a sudden, you come to this verse in the Bible and say, listen. You come to this page or this sentence or this paragraph in this book and you say, uh-uh. No way because of this book, this book, this book, the Bible, and that word, there's a, there's a conflict there. Now listen, you say, well, that's just for you because you're a pastor, you're a preacher. Listen, every Christian ought to live like that. You ought to increase so much in your knowledge of the scriptures that you can spot the counterfeit. Whether you read it or whether you see it on a newspaper, you hear it on the radio, it comes on your phone, it's on the TV news, or it's on some book you buy or some movies. There are so many movies people say, oh, that's a great movie. And I'm saying, that's not a great movie. It's against the Bible. Well, it was really fun to watch. How can it be fun to watch when it's against the Bible? So the importance, the, the word of God is the important thing. I know the foundation here of the church is the apostles and prophets, but these were not carpenters. These were not tech people. These were not garbage collectors. They were not doctors. They were not attorneys. No, they were preachers. They were spokesmen. They were people who gave forth the word of God, and that is the key to being saved, even getting in God's church, and then living as a stone in God's church. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Then he says, secondly, this, this church has a cornerstone. And we are built upon the foundation. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Just a few words about Christ. Christ is the builder of the church. You know that, don't you? From Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus asked his disciples one day, Whom do men say that I am? They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. All kinds of different ideas about there about who you are. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, okay, but, but whom do you say that I am? Peter, of course, spoke up and said, thou art the Christ. What else? You tell me. Thou art the Christ, the, the son of the living God. That's who you are. You're the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. You are the very son of the living God. And what did Jesus say? Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood hath not revealed that unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, not Peter, he was not the first pope. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And then what did he say? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Jesus said, I will build my church. By the way, future tense, see, wasn't there yet. I will build my church. Who's doing, who's doing the building? Jesus Christ is not. Jesus Christ is both the builder of the church and he is the cornerstone of the church. That's what our verse says. He's the builder. He's the cornerstone. So what's the meaning? Oh, we got to go to, keep your finger here. We are going to come right back, okay? But go to 1 Peter chapter 2 for just a moment. I mean, how can you study Ephesians 2, verses 18, 19 through 22, especially 19 to 22? How can you study that without sometime or other thinking about 1 Peter chapter 2? You talk about a parallel passage. 
I'm trying to refrain from going all over the Bible as far as having you turn with me. I know I quote a lot of verses, but that's the important thing is we got to go to this one because I, I know I can't quote all these verses. I don't think I maybe could, but I don't want to take a chance, okay? So look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and look at the first eight verses and think as we read because we're not going to dwell there. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envyings and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, and you have. To whom coming as unto a, next two words please, together. That's the believer. Now watch this, a living stone. This is the, talking about the building, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the building, the church. To whom coming as unto a living stone, who's this referring to? Christ. We're going to be called living stones or uh, stones later on. But now he's talking about the living stone. He's talking about the, the cornerstone. He says, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. You also as, next two words, lively stones, which means literally living stones. So we have a living stone. He's the cornerstone, the builder of the church. We also have lively stones. You also, as <coughs> lively stones or living stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood. Boy, every word's important. You also, as living stones, believers, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also it is contained in the scriptures. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, believers, Christians, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, notice please, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Notice Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's the builder of the church. Now, what is important about the cornerstone? Go back to, if you will, our text. Why is a cornerstone important? What's the meaning of the cornerstone? First of all, it binds the temple together, binds the whole church together, the temple together, the cornerstone. By the way, the root word of the word cornerstone the root word this is interesting is the word angle not angel now angle amongst other things the angle determines the direction that the building faces all of the stones that are built upon this foundation they're all built facing a certain direction everything ties in with the cornerstone I could preach a message on the importance therefore of Jesus just being the cornerstone the one upon whom, the one that holds the church together, the one upon whom the whole church is built, and all of the angle and the direction of the church is all established by the chief cornerstone. His name is Jesus Christ. The thing I want to spend just a few moments on before we go to our next point is the fact that the cornerstone was the rejected stone. Did you catch that back in 1 Peter chapter 2? We read these words, the stone which the builders disallowed by men the same was made by God the Father, the head of the corner. That's all through the Bible. That's prophesied all through the scriptures. 
Uh, back in, in, in Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, listen to these. The stone, here's, 20, here's Psalm, well, let's go there. You've got to turn there, please. Go back to Psalm 118. We're just two verses in Psalm 118. Maybe you want to underline them in your Bible. Here's where that comes from in 1 Peter. The stone which the builders refused, in 1 Peter, it's the word disallowed, rejected, refused. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Would you read those two verses together out loud, please? Would you do that with me? The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That's Old Testament. That's the psalmist. We won't take time to go there, but if you're taking down notes, write down Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 44, especially verse 42. This was talked about by the Lord Jesus Christ. He mentioned this. He told the parable about the man that had a vineyard, and, and he let it out for others to take care of. And then when it's time for the grapes to be ripe, he sends forth his servants, some servants. He sends them out to the, to the vineyard to, to bring back some of the fruit. And when they saw the, the servant, when they saw this, these men coming, what did they do? It says they, they stoned one, they beat another, and they killed the third one. Now the word gets back to the owner of the vineyard. He says, that's how they treated my servants? He said, yeah. He said, well, I'll tell you what, I understand this. Let me send some more servants. So he calls together some more. He said, have you heard? I hope he didn't say, did you hear about Because they're not going, okay? Did you hear about what happened? I sent some servants, and, and this is how they treated them. They stoned one, they beat one, and they killed one. So I want you guys to go and bring back some fruit, okay? So they go. What happens when they get there? They stone them, they beat them, and they kill them. Would you like to be in the next group? The owner of the vineyard says, you know what? I can't be sending any more servants. They don't treat them right. I'll send my son. And this is what he says. Truly, they will reverence my son. Don't miss that. When the son gets there, they see him coming. And they say, this is the son. Let us kill him and the vineyard will be ours. It'll be our inheritance. And Jesus says, that has to do with you. Because after that, the, the Bible says, and the Pharisees knew that, that he spoke this about them. That's about you, and he says, it's about me. It's all about me. And listen to what he says in Matthew 21, 42, the words of Jesus. Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. David prophesied of it. Jesus quoted David and said, it's all about me. And then... After Jesus went back to heaven, after Pentecost, when the apostles go out and preach the Bible, wouldn't you know it? Acts chapter 4, verse 11, Peter is preaching, and this is what he says. After he speaks about Jesus being crucified, you crucified him. And he speaks about Jesus being buried. He speaks about Jesus being resurrected. He speaks about Jesus going back to his father. And he says these words. This, regarding Jesus, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. He quotes the psalm. He verifies again what Jesus said. And in the very next verse, interesting, we find these words, Acts 4.12. Speaking of Jesus, the rejected cornerstone, he says, neither is there salvation in any other. 
For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. By the way, folks, that is pretty exclusive. Would you agree? The world does not like that message. The world's message is it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what your religion is. It doesn't even matter if you have no religion. There's going to be salvation for everyone because God, whoever he is, is loving and he accepts all people of all faiths no matter what you believe. Peter says that is not true. Neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, nobody ever comes to the Father but through me. So we'll go back to our text, Ephesians chapter 2. And are built, verse 20, are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. When you think, Brother Brian mentioned this, it's amazing again how much his Sunday school class ties together with a morning message. Thank you, Brian. If there is one word that summarizes how Jesus Christ was received while he was here and ever since he left, it has to be the word rejected. Rejected. But aren't you glad for John 1, 10 through 12? He came unto his own and his own received him not. They disallowed him. They rejected him. But as many as received him, that's me. How about you? Amen? As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now would you look please back at our text, verse 21. Read 20 and 21 together now. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly joined together or framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. So now he's going to talk about, he's talked about the foundation, the apostles and the prophets. He's mentioned the chief cornerstone. Now in closing, he's going to talk about the building itself. He's going to talk about what is called the household of God or actual individual true Christians. And that brings us back to that, that verse again in 1 Peter 2, 5, that we are as lively stones or living stones are built up a spiritual house. We're told here, first of all, it was fitly framed together. Fitly framed together. Definition speaks of togetherness. It's a union of the building. It's one building with many stones all joined together. In fact, the word frame means joint. It comes from the word means joint. A joint, that which joins together, being fitly joined together, framed together. It's, it's, it's brought together. When we think of the church, we should think two things. We should think, first of all, of the church individually, and by that, whether it's the local church or the true church, the worldwide church, the universal church, the, all the body of Christ, we should think individually. Is what we mean by that. Because the church is made up of individual Christians. You follow me? It's every single individual. Brother Brian mentioned in Sunday school, the message of salvation, the invitation goes out to whosoever, but not everybody says, I want him. Those who do are individuals. You know this, I know this. We cannot make a decision to be saved for somebody else. Isn't there somebody today you'd like to make the decision for them? You wish you could just get into their mind and heart and you wish that you could accept Christ for them, that you could depend upon the Lord for them. But we know we can't do that. And as soul winners, as people who witness, when we talk to people about the Lord, we always have to be careful. Say, listen, they're not ready for this. They don't seem to understand this. They don't really want this for themselves. I can't make a decision for them, 
I better hold off. I better stop. I better keep praying and talk some more. Or sometimes, you know, God has so much spoken to them. They understand. They're eager. They're willing. They want to be saved. And we help them trust the Lord. Because salvation is an individual thing. And that's why, listen, every stone in the building of God, the church, is an individual stone. But then we also have to think corporately. Because it's individual living stones, but it's one building. Foundation, apostles and prophets, cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ, individual stones, every individual Christian. But it's one building. It's one body. We think corporately. And then there's that word, look at this, verse uh, 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together, it grows. It grows into the holy temple of God. Acts chapter 2, verse 47, remember the day of Pentecost? It says, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. It's a growing, it's a growing church. It's a growing building. Every new believer is another stone in the building. The Holy Spirit indwells every single one of them. We're living stones. Christ is our life. When a person accepts Christ as Savior, it's like one more stone in the church, God's church. One more stone in the building of God. Would you turn, please, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Go back to 2 Corinthians 6. It's a growing temple. Also, we'll see this in our text also. It is a holy temple. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Notice, please, verse 16. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Answer, none. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You are the temple of the living God, he says. What is that all about? What is the context of this? Listen, folks. God's temple, God's church, is a holy temple. It's a holy building. It's a holy body. And this passage in 2 Corinthians is all about, nobody likes this word anymore, or let me put it this way, a lot of people don't like this word anymore. This passage is all about the doctrine of separation. Look at it, verse 14. Be ye not Christians, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? None. What communion hath light with darkness? None. What conquered hath Christ with Belial? None. What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? None. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? None. For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, and I will dwell in them, and I will walk in them, and I will be their God, and they should be my people. Wherefore, conclusion verse 17, what difference does it make? Wherefore, come out from among them and be, come on now, out loud folks please, be separate. There's nothing wrong with the word separation. It's a Bible word. Wherefore? Because all of this is true. We're the temple of God. He says, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, be a father unto you. You should be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. It's all about biblical separation. Now listen, why is the church to be separated? Why are these individual stones sacred? Sacred, separated unto service for God and love of God and adoration of God, loyalty to God. Why? There's one simple reason. It goes like this. Because what is it that every true Christian has in common? The answer is we have the, we have the Holy Spirit. 
And that's, we have the spirit who is holy. God says, be ye holy as I am holy. If we have the Holy Spirit living within us, if we don't, we're not saved. I point that out often, Romans 8 9. If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he's none of his. If we have the Holy Spirit living within us and we are saved, then we are as a saved person, one of those stones in this church, this building of God. But because we're in there, because the Holy Spirit has converted us, he's convicted us, and he indwells us, and he is the Holy Spirit, then it makes sense that we are holy stones, sacred stones. And how sad it is today that you don't see that too often, do you? There's not a lot of difference today in the average lifestyle of the average quote-unquote Christian than the average lifestyle of an unsaved person. And I often wonder, what in the world, what concept does the world ever have today of Christianity? What difference does it make? It ought to make a lot of difference. Because if they're not saved, they're not in God's building. They're not built, their life is not built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They don't know anything about Jesus Christ, the rejected Christ, as now the head of the corner, the cornerstone. They have not been saved. They're not born again. They don't have God's spirit inside. And that's why they live like they live. They live unholy lives and we'll feel sorry for them. But when a person's saved, when he's in the building of God, when he's in the family of God, when he's indwelt by the spirit of God, then it makes good sense. He ought to live a different lifestyle. That's all in our text. Go back, if you will, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. We're almost finished. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 22, in whom also are all the building fitly framed or joined together. It grows unto a, what's the next word? It's a holy. It grows unto an holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through his spirit. And I want to mention this today in closing. Word habitation. It means dwelling. But it has reference to a permanent dwelling. We're framed together. We grow together into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for an habitation, a permanent dwelling of God through His Spirit. I am so glad for the Bible doctrine of the security of the believer. Eternal security. The fact that when Christ's Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes to live in a body at the second of conversion, He is in there forever. He never leaves. And we have what is called in the Bible everlasting life, eternal life. Listen, if it's eternal, if it's everlasting, it cannot end. Amen? And praise the Lord, it doesn't end when I commit a certain sin. It does not end when I commit a certain number of sins. What does Ephesians 4.30 say? We'll study this if we ever get to Ephesians 4. I know what you're thinking, okay? Ephesians 4.30. And grieve not, this is to Christians, and grieve not the Spirit of God whereby you are sealed until you commit 34 sins. Is that what it says? Grieve not the Spirit of God by whom you are sealed until you commit that one bad sin. That's not what it says. And grieve not the Spirit of God whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption, final redemption. You know what the Bible says? Once saved, always saved. Now, by the way, regarding a local church, a true Christian 
can commit a sin or some sins. And because of a change of lifestyle, they can drop out of church. They can choose to leave church, whether it's for a little while or it, and then they never come back. They just go so far away from it, they never come back. Maybe they go join another. I don't know, but listen, a local church can lose a stone. Are you with me? And sometimes if a person insists on committing sin and it becomes a public thing, people in the church know, and they won't come back after they're prayed with and spoken to, sometimes the church has to expel them. They have to be put out of the local church. So there's one less stone in the membership. There's one less person in church because they said, look, I'm going to live like this. I'm sorry, thank you very much, but no, I'm not going to change. Okay, so a local church can lose a stone whether they choose to leave or whether they are put out. But no stone. Listen, Jesus Christ does never chip out a stone in the true church. They may be backslidden. They might be a disgrace. But if they are a stone in God's church, it is a habitual dwelling place. It is a permanent dwelling place. Once saved, always saved. And what they need to see is, I, I need to stop grieving the spirit of God. I need to come back to the Lord. I'm so glad for the book of Ephesians. I'm so glad for Ephesians 2. And I'm so glad for those last four verses in this chapter that the church, whether the local church or the true church, all believers everywhere, it's all about the message of the apostles and the prophets, God's spokesman. It's all about this book, what they said. It's all about the rejected by men, but the accepted by God the Father of Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone who's building his church. And it's all about individual believers who by faith see that they're sinners on the way to hell. They don't want to go to hell. They want to be born again. They want to be saved. They want forgiveness. They want eternal life. And they come to hear the gospel message and they receive Jesus Christ in their heart as their personal Savior. And God says, you are a part of my special building. One more stone in the building. And by the way, when the last person is saved as a part of God's building and that building is complete, Jesus Christ will come back. It's called the rapture of the church. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be the soul winner who won the last convert? Bow your heads, please. One more stone in the building, and the building is complete, and God says, come up hither. That's a message in itself. The church, the one body, whether Jew or Gentile, they all have the same thing in common. They've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They've been saved. All because of the message of the Word of God and the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Son of God and the convicting and convincing work of the Holy Spirit who comes inside the second we believe. What a wonderful, wonderful message. May we be truly holy stones sacred, separated stones. And may we tell others that they too can be saved. God loves them. Jesus died for them. And they can have eternal life if they'll trust him. Father, we thank you for your word today. The privilege that I have to prepare the message, your word, and to deliver it. 
the opportunity that we have here today to hear this is what you have said. May it draw us closer to you, I pray, and give us a greater burden for those that are still not a part of your building. May we join you and be co-laborers together as you build your church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, please. As we close every service here with an invitation, we do so this morning. First of all, if you're here today and you're not sure you're saved or you're sitting there saying, you know what? This is a fantastic building that Jesus is building and I'm not in it. I am not yet a part of that building. There never has been a time in my life when I have confessed my sin to God and asked Jesus to be my Savior and put my trust in him. That's never happened. Then I invite you, wherever you are, whoever you are, wherever you're standing today, while she plays, while our pianist plays, you step out to the nearest aisle. You, you come up and see me. And I have one question. Why have you come and you say, I'm not a part of the building. I've never been saved. I, I've never been in God's church. I'd like to be. Somebody will take you to a Sunday school classroom where the Bible makes sure you understand the plan of salvation and trust the Lord. You need to do that today. Today. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. As a Christian today, you say, God spoke to my heart as a believer. He reminded me of some things today that I already knew, but I've kind of forgotten. Or maybe I, I heard something today I really didn't. It never made sense to me before. All right, then you talk with the Lord about that. Whatever you've heard from the Bible today, before we walk out of here and get in our cars and go someplace, just talk with the Lord about what you heard in the Bible this morning. Would you do that, please? one more verse and we close today she's playing a song that last phrase said I am his and he is mine what a wonderful phrase are you his today are you Christ today is Christ yours today I'm his and he's mine are you a Christian on this last line or two here, please. Why don't you come? Anyone? Anyone not sure you're saved? Come on. Last phrase. Would you come today? You can be his and he can be yours. Anyone? ask visitors to close in prayer, but I'm asking one today. You still pray, brother? Suzanne, is he still on praying ground? Even though he lives in Alabama now? Hey, when I got to the golf course yesterday, I walked in there with my clubs. I thought, I'll put my clubs someplace.